Welcome to the show today, and may you reach the state of excellence by the week's end. Now, it's hard to say and hard to do, but being excellent doesn't need to be complicated, in my view. Just keep getting better at what you're doing. Wait for all the voices saying that you can't to gradually fade away. Job done. You're most excellent. Maybe we learned this with sport or business, public speaking, leadership, or whatever. But can we apply the same principles of pushing through to the world of investing, too? And today, we're going to be talking about being excellent with picking stocks. Now, right away, some of you might have your backs up already. You can't outperform the market. Hang on, we'll get to that. I promise we will, but keep an open mind until we do. And as you listen today, there is a very strong chance that you are going to feel challenged. I did. I still do. And I'm not sure that I have all the right answers yet around which is the best type of investment style or whether any of it even matters at all. Deep value, focused, meme stock, passive, crypto, dividends, or growth, technical or fundamentals, you name it. There's a hardcore following everywhere for something. Are they right? Have they really discovered the one true way to invest that we should all adopt now with confidence? Well, there's always a tribe, right? With views, at odds, with another. Someone has to be right, right? For some, low-cost index funds for the vast majority of their portfolio is the only way to go. Low-cost. Very set and forget what's there to hate. Plus, you've seen the data on the slides at the events sponsored by the passive fund managers. It's hard and often impossible to beat the average, especially consistently, so don't even bother. You don't want to gamble your retirement disagreeing with that, do you? Perhaps it's true that the most efficient way to get a compounding rate of return out of the market, though, is through low-cost managed funds. So it's efficient, but is it best? More importantly, is it best for you? What if you wanted more? And what if you wanted to consider the idea of owning just a small handful of direct shares? Why can't you succeed at this? If you know the business, if you know yourself, and if you know the future, why not focus your firepower? And I think we've been investing in safety for far too long. Being a focused, concentrated investor in individual shares by some is seen as risky. In other words, they believe you're going to lose all your money. They want to keep you safe. And I could think of worse things for them to want for you, but after a while, safety's opportunity cost becomes very apparent. Eventually, you stumble on the fact that you really wanted something a bit better than average for your life. Who wants to get to the place of work because you want to, not because you have to? Who wants to be free from the worry that you're going to outlive your money? Well, when the world's increasingly scared to death, safety may be the dumbest investment strategy to anchor on. This is the best time ever to start investing for the courageous investor. Now, Cole Hopfuhr is the head fishmonger at Find Fat Fish, which in his words means that he's a personal trainer for personal finance. In my words, he can help you develop a psychology that you need to succeed with focus investing. Cole isn't a financial advisor, he does not handle client money, and he doesn't provide a stock picking service. But while you and I were busy getting a compounding return of 10% on our managed funds, Cole cleared a 1,400% investment return from January 2016 to December 2020 using the same strategy that he coaches others to follow and the same strategy that we're going to talk a little bit about today. Now, it is a slick sales pitch, yes, but considering virtually the only difference between you and Peter Lynch or Warren Buffett is psychology, why couldn't this work for you too? And now a link to Find Fat Fish is in the show notes, and I'll cover off a bit more around this episode this coming Friday too. 
Let's get started though. Welcome to the latest edition of the NZ Everyday Investor Podcast. In this podcast, I cover a wide range of topics ranging from property investment, investing in managed funds and KiwiSaver, precious metals and digital assets like Bitcoin. Why do I do it? Because I love learning and helping everyday Kiwis build new wealth for the new world that we're heading into. I'm Darcy Angaro, your host and qualified financial advisor. My goal is to get self-directed DIY investors thinking about all the tools available to build wealth. While I hope this will assist you in making more informed financial decisions, please do keep in mind that nothing you hear today is considered financial advice. Investments or strategies discussed may not be suitable for everyone, so be sure to do your own research before acting on anything discussed today. Further information on today's show can be found by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player. Here you'll find some show notes which will contain all relevant links relating to today's topic. Hope you enjoy the show. Can this actually work with other people? So I'll, I'll kind of remove the intrigue shortly, but I just want you to complete this to start with. So we have growth, value, capital gains, yield, diversification. Concentration. Cool. So it feels like there's always an either or. It's binary. You get to choose one or the other. But this concentration theme kind of goes a little bit further, right, in the, in the area of focus investing. And that's kind of what you would classify your core skill set as, right, as a someone who can help people through the um, the learning process of, of becoming a focused investor themselves. Is that is that right? More or less. So first, yeah, we had a really good conversation yesterday, a soft debate, as you said, with uh, between me representing the amateur investor and concentration focus investing versus Rupert. Uh, what's his last name? Carline. Carline, representing the professional, classically trained investor and the diversification strategy. And I want to shout him out because he uh, he represents the rare voice in my experience who has the classical training, as do you, of course, who is also capable and like wanting to question assumptions. And that is the only way that there's ever going to be progress from the inside is people like that where if, you know, they'll tenaciously hold their ground. But if there is any kind of data that suggests that there's a better way for themselves to serve their clients and to create, like we were saying, like the best kitchen for an amateur investor to cook inside of, mm. that's the only way that the context is ever going to get better. So shout out to him for that conversation. Anyone who's listening to this and has an interest in that sort of soft conflict, I would recommend listening to that. Um, but yeah, in terms of me, um, I... And sometimes I disappoint people. We had a great conversation in August of 2020 that led some very interesting people into my world. And some of them sought me out to like grab a beer or some caffeine and talk. And they were like a little bit disappointed, some of them, that I wasn't more of like a finance nerd and that I don't have much interest in fishing, even though my business is called Fine Fat Fish. Um, but essentially for me, I have, I'm, I'm on my 17th year of investing my own money in stocks based on an hour a day education that I got on a cruise ship from my dad who was so disgusted with my life choices that he pulled me out of university to teach me on that vessel where he was living at the time. And so for me, I've got 17 years of experience doing it and I have about 10 years of experience teaching it in an increasingly structured way that is now formally like pretty calcified and proven and with global proof of concept, which for context is why I left the US five and a half years ago. But circling back, like there are two major problems that almost everyone in the world is suffering under and they're getting worse, not better. 
everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. And those problems are the inability to look in the mirror and say, I work because I want to, not because I have to. And even more primally and painfully, I have absolutely no confidence in my ability to not outlive my money. Like I, one bad, especially in the U.S. because of where, where health insurance is, one bad break will lead to a financial breakdown when, and I will get eventually bankrupted as an older person for being an older person if I don't learn how to defend myself better. And then a secondary or like a tertiary concern would be sort of like I am also sort of demoralized that I can't look at my children and be like, I have developed the human capital that I can educate them to prepare themselves to defend themselves better than I have. And so I am interested exclusively in investing as the skill set to deliver people past those problems if they are dead serious and not merely interested in collecting information, dancing around instead of making a decision. They're dead set on solving that problem within the next couple of months. Like, I'm your guy. And for everyone else, I am decidedly not your guy. I'm not your guy at all. And that's good Um, to remember. In terms of specifying what... um, what I do versus what I don't do yeah, and, and why it's yeah. unique in the marketplace. Um, I mean, basically the problems as I've expressed are I look at my income and my net worth with terror because I don't know where the hell to put it. And my I have to invest every dollar I've ever made and every minute I'll ever have, but I don't have a solid identity as an investor. Those are the problems. And so that or any other problem, be it in like with obesity or divorce or any other place, there's four ways that somebody could step in and help you. They could tell you how to fix it. They could show you how to fix it. They could fix it with you or they can fix it for you. And so if you look at the landscape of investing, there is a glut of tell you how books that to be frank, have done absolutely nothing to move the needle, not at all. And then you have a glut of done for you services where there's a lot of people, and this is, you know, there's a lot of power, there's a lot of stature, there's a lot of wealth in stepping into this game. But essentially, most of the landscape is people that have mastered the art of looking the part, of embodying sort of like the um, the look of authority that is discussed in Cialdini's book, Influence. And if you're interested in sort of how you've been manipulated by the apparition of authority, it would be worth reading that through that prism. And basically all they want from you is 2% of your net worth every year, 20% of your capital gains, and for you to be asleep in the backseat, shutting the hell up so that they can just have this be as smooth of a ride for them as possible while they deliver you tepid results at best. There needs to be a different presence. There needs to be a different vehicle. Each of those vehicles, I think, can get better over time on their own, but there need to be two different pieces. And so the two things that you could do other than that, other than tell them how to do it and do it for them, are show them how to do it Mm. and to do it with them. Mm. And so for me, those are the marketplace opportunities that are truly tremendous in the space. Mm. There is a sincere and ridiculous dearth of those Mm. things. So I have a workshop that this where essentially I show people how to do it and then I sort of Sherpa them in such a way that they do it themselves mm. until they no longer need me. And they're standing on their two own two feet as self-directed stock pickers and investors and they don't need me or anybody else. And importantly, and something that comes up at the end, 
it's interesting, like in the context of a tell you how or a done for you, a stock newsletter is kind of both. It's kind mm -hmm. of like telling you what to do, but it's kind of doing the heavy lifting for you as well. At the end, sometimes people are like, well, what do you think about, I shouldn't say any names, but like newsletters. And for me, I'm like, I think that a newsletter is an amazing resource in terms of idea generation, et cetera, as long as you don't need it. And I think that a financial advisor is an amazing ally as long as you don't need them and mm -hmm. that you can go in and have half an idea at least about how to scrutinize the work that they're doing. Otherwise, you're delegating a job that is more important than your actual job that you don't understand. And that is massively problematic. That's so good. People are listening and you didn't quite get that. Just rewind. It's okay. You're allowed to do that. This, this one hour podcast, whatever it's going to be, is going to be as long as you need it to be just to go back. I, I was saying to you yesterday that, you know, I'm a slow learner. Maybe you didn't really pick up on that right at the beginning, but I seriously am a slow learner. So let's go way back, right back. You mentioned two things that when people look in the mirror, they see, can you just go back there again? Describe mm -hmm. those two things to me because there was something in that. I just can't remember what so it was. So essentially the inability to say I work because I want to, not because I have to. Mm. I've talked to hundreds of people across a number, like every age bracket that is eligible to invest, all the genders, many countries, et cetera. And that's the main thing is just feeling shackled to a life that doesn't really suit you with no exit strategy simply because you don't know what to do with the income that you're grinding for. And, and that's the thing. That's it right there. Is the same that's a, that's the same thing that, that you get every day and that I get every day is is actually working with people through that confrontation where they see that, that they look at that big heavy weight, they can't get rid of it. How am I actually gonna get rid of this whole I gotta get out of this work thing, it's killing me from the inside out. I know that's what I need to do, it's what everybody else I think is doing, but I don't know how they're doing it. I feel like I'm going to be crushed one day by my job. How am I going to actually get my time back and do things on my terms, right? I go to work because I want to, not because I have to. That's what I call, call retirement in, in my lingo. In a way, but I mean, like you're doing exactly what you want to be doing. And so for me, it's been really interesting where like as some of my great sort of like senseis over the years, like what they would say is like, if you're not getting what you want from the world in any given area, if you're not getting the outcome that you want ever, much less on a consistent basis, one of two things is broken, your psychology or your strategy. Mm. And in the context of amateur investing, both things are broken. People don't know the target they're aiming at. They don't know how to onboard their spouse or whoever they're in the saddle with. They don't know how to pick stocks. They don't know how to invest once they've found a conviction. It's all broken. And so there's psychological elements and strategic elements. But once those things have been resolved, there's kind of an amazing transformation that happens pretty quickly once you have the psychological piece licked, which is that a lot of times people will step out of an unfulfilling work and start a business. Sometimes people will push for a promotion that they've been, you know, thinking about pursuing or a side hustle that they've been dealt like putting off and deliberating about for decades, because now they have more clarity about where this is all going. And they actually have a place that they're excited to put their money. Mm. And if you actually think about how tragic it would be to have never have conviction in a single investment, like at a certain point, you would feel defeatist about making more money because you're just like the tax man's going to get it and then Wall Street's going to get it. What am I doing? Mm. And so it's been fascinating where like once somebody is on the other side of these really painful confusions that they don't really feel comfortable confiding in anybody. Mm. Once they're on the other side, they start to open up and step into a different identity, a different lifestyle. 
in mm. a way that like I don't I feel like I still will see things that will take me completely by surprise. And it's kind of like that concept of when you when you're facing something that is a it's either a truth or it's a challenge there is some pain as you go through it like there's some genuine battle and and you and you you will get hurt it, there's resistance which puts many of us off going through it to begin with but on the other side of that you're actually okay it is it's a survivable pain to go through so like when you're confronting the um, I have no idea how I'm going to get to the place where if I go to work, I go to work because I want to, not because I have to. Mm. So if you're confronting that and you're thinking there's all these pieces around that thing that's stopping me from getting through it and I don't want to get hurt because it's painful. Um, what you're saying, though, is that like there is there is a sense of freedom on the other end of that. It's a survivable level of pain. You can get through to the other side and then you can look back and you can go, I actually did that. Yeah. You, you, you see that with people. A hundred. That's such a good, that's such a good observation. And I guess it's like, I got this from the four hour work week, like 15 years ago, but the difference between you stress and distress stress that is healthy for you. And you know, it is, but you avoid it for some reason versus distress stress that is actually, you know, a counter argument to whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's like, no, this is not making me stronger. This is breaking me down. Yeah. And that, that kind of yeah. thing. But yeah, for me, like, as you were saying that there are certain sound bites that people have said when they have made certain strides in the workshop. And so I worked with a 62 year old lawyer recently who said, I haven't had this much confidence since I was 35. And there, I worked with somebody else who left his job shortly after completing the workshop to start his own business that he's still running now, like five years later. And the first thing that he said, where I was like, wow, I was like, this is going to work for him without a shadow of a doubt. He goes, I'm smart enough to find a pick. And if you think about it, it sounds like such a simple thing, but it's like, I don't need a stock newsletter because I am smart enough to step, step into my environment, pull out an opportunity, research it carefully mm. and make a decision mm. and uh, imbalance risk and rewards so that the reward vastly outweighs the risk. Mm. And I can do that over and over at will. Therefore, I'm smart enough to find a pick. And after he did that, I mean, he, he changed his life. Yeah. It's cool, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, the point of it is, um, and yeah, because a lot of people are still unclear, even with that level of exposition, what actually all of this is. And then it's like, this is an alternate philosophy where essentially like I'm something of a zealot in delivering people to their own independence. And if you're not interested in an alternate philosophy and you're not interested in actually owning your own independence in perpetuity and then probably passing that on to your family, the ones who are willing to listen you want absolutely nothing to do with me and vice versa. <laughs> but yeah, if that's, and you have to be honest with yourself as well, because like that and that it is what it is. If you are like that, where you're thinking, this is not, uh, this is not the right time for me to start this battle. This is not a battle. I even want to fight at all. Be honest with yourself, right? Don't try and, and think, this isn't something nothing, that you have to do. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's a similar thing. And this never comes up is deciding. This is the thing that comes, you know, where push comes to shove, with me pretty quickly when talking to new people is like when you idealize what it is that you're looking to build here, when you're visualizing that end result that would justify stepping into this, because it is you stress, it is a fire until you're on the other side, you front loaded the work and now you're confident on the other side. It's a ton of work. And so like, do you see yourself not just in terms of what you view as realistic and pulling it down, but when you actually think about the path that you want to be on, do you see yourself shoulder to shoulder with your spouse or do you see yourself carrying them 
in a way where they're trusting your judgment and they're happy sort of in the backseat with you driving the bus. And um, getting people clear on that synergy is so important. And again, there's no judgment for me whatsoever. But the key thing is that you make a decision that you're congruent with and that is going to stand once the chips are actually being pushed into the middle of the table. What are some of the key things that people say to you that give away the fact that they don't know what your role is with helping them to be successful with money and investing? If someone has like gone to my site and gone through that choose your own adventure, there's usually no questions anymore. Mm. Um, but in public, it'd be mm. like, what the hell do you do again? I don't, I don't understand. Well, even, even me, right? Like we were talking the other day around this, that I think you've probably explained to me three or four times what you do. And I think you know, yesterday you just made the comment like, uh, based on what you said, it kind of sounds like you still don't understand what I do. And I said, like, you got it, man. I still don't get it. <laughs> but that's part of the beauty of it is that as you understand what it is, you're actually on the journey of understanding how to solve your own problems because it's part of the same thing. All, you, all you've done is you've created a framework to walk people through something where they, they confront something, they slay the dragon, and then they move forward with something. And they, they've done it because they've, they've done it themselves and you're just facilitating the process. That's exactly it. Now, I guess what I would say to that, upon a bit of reflection is if someone doesn't get it, they'll do what people always do, which is just project their own beliefs and insecurities into what you do. So like people like on Facebook advertisement, for example, somebody who just has like the briefest flicker of what I do will start being like, you brokers are all soulless. The crypto is nonsense. And they'll start saying things that have nothing to do. I'm not a broker. I don't operate in crypto, at least not yet. And uh, and and so like it, they'll just start hurling their preconceived notions based on very little. Yeah. And I, I guess that's it. And the more that you get it, the less ineffective assumptions come to the party. Yeah. And the, and the more you begin to actually go along with the ride, because it's mm -hmm. not a bad ride. So going back again, so at, at the very start, you mentioned those two things, the that sense that there needs to be some sort of confrontation with something that's stopping you from getting to a place where you work because you want to, not because you need to. But what was the other thing? So the other one, uh, which is a logical extension, and I think even more horrifying, is the ability to look yourself in the mirror and say, there is absolutely no chance whatsoever that I am going to outlive my money. Mm. I will not. I will not go bankrupt when I'm too old to defend myself, mm. is essentially it. And I cannot overstate how much primal fear is coming from the U.S. because of the dumpster fire that is U.S. health insurance. And, and I talk to people in New Zealand, and, and the, the fears are very similar, but there is a level of distress that is markedly different. And so I am massively committed to helping people out of that trap who are willing and able to self-liberate in the States. But I have to confess that it is a... It is just a much smoother ride when you talk to people that aren't caught in a country that, to be frank, is doing a pretty terrible job of looking after the everyday person and the everyday investor. It, in the U.S. specifically is what you're referring to. Just, is, just to be clear. <laughs> that is precisely what I'm referring yeah. to. So in New Zealand, though, do you sense there's a bit of a complacency around that, therefore, then, like where people think, well, I don't need to worry about that because it's always been pretty okay in New Zealand. The state will take care of me. That is interesting, and that's actually not what I'm running into at all, um, which is lucky for everyone involved, really. But it's interesting because before I left the U.S., I remember reading that per capita New Zealand was the most entrepreneurial country in the world. And, you know, not to, like, 
go on a diatribe about it, but if you think about sort of like what people are getting away from and what they're trying to get to, generally speaking, somebody who is in a sort of employee mentality, a nine to five mentality, it's more about getting away from a painful situation. And someone who's in an entrepreneurial mentality, it's more about capturing an opportunity. Mm. And the level, there's more still of the nine to five mentality here, but on a proportion basis, you talk to a surprising number of people that like see a vision, like an exciting vision for what they want mm. with enough sort of force that they're willing to step through complacency, even though they don't technically need it. They There's a burning desire where nonetheless, they still kind of need it. I absolutely know exactly what you're saying because I think anybody in business who has managed to create something out of nothing and actually sustain a family, mm. you've actually done something pretty phenomenal, right? But once you've actually sorted yourself out, very quickly you get to a point where there's got to be more. There's got to be not more as in more in a greed context because you actually already have enough. Mm. You, you can only eat so much and then you're full and you're spewing it out. But there's got to be more for others. There's got to be more meaning. There's got to be more of a legacy. There's got to be more something else that mm. leaves that I can leave behind because I, if I can do this, then I must be able to do something better. And if I don't do something better, the world's probably not going to be a, a very good place. Mm. or not as good of a place, mm. I should rather say. So it's not an ego thing. A lot of people probably would look at that and think, hey, I, I got to slash that tall poppy down, right? But I think in the context of, yeah. hey, together, everybody achieves more, right? Like we, we probably kind of push aside these people that are kind of like the bright sparks, the ambitious around us. How much of a problem is that? And and do you see that as, as a US-born person, mm. steeped in US culture initially, <laughs> coming into New Zealand, how much of a problem is tall poppy syndrome here in New Zealand? Oh boy. Um, it's funny that that's the subject that strikes me as the most loaded. So basically for me, it's fascinating. It doesn't really come into play once somebody is has committed to work themselves through the aforementioned fire. It might be once they're 10 years on the other side and they can't even talk to other people about what they've achieved on the investing side or what they're, what they're going to do. Um, like one of my mantras on that score that I've learned the hard way for a variety of reasons, I suppose tall poppy syndrome being one of them, is find fat fish, then shut your face. Like it's between you and you. And maybe you have like a right hand, you know what I mean? And you obviously have me as a mentor if you're in that situation. But like mostly friends and family are going to be your absolute worst enemy. I remember I quoted Stephen Pressfield the first time we talked. I'd quote him again. In the book, Do the Work, he points out um, that friends and family love you as you are, but that's the rub. Because they love you as you are, they are absolutely maintained, they are invested in keeping you as you are. And so if you if they sense that you're stepping into some alternate identity, they will chop you down. And that I mean, that is certainly not exclusive to New Zealand or Australia, who have definitely cornered the market on identifying with tall poppy syndrome. That's in the U.S. That's everywhere. There's a reason why I'm doing this outside of New York right now, because, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to be in the Wall Street environment with an alternate approach. And then the more traction you get, the more projections of insecurity you get from other people that are, for some reason are feeling left behind. And so tall poppy syndrome is everywhere. But in the context of New Zealand, it is funny to me because I have been here now for about four years and New Zealanders on average are constitutionally incapable of taking a compliment, seemingly because they're scared that like their community is going to come and like tar and feather them if they like <laughs> accept a compliment. And so that, I've seen that everywhere all the time. Yeah. But it's funny because it is simply a projection of communal insecurity. And the main thing is 
like as somebody who's been here and who's from New York, I have been looking at the world stage and pretty much everywhere that I follow, there is a Kiwi or two that's holding their own. And New Zealand as a collective wants very much to be a tall poppy that as a community of 5 million is standing out on the world stage and it's succeeding. But it's interesting when people do it, the ones who didn't do it or are afraid they're not going to do it, you know, come come and rip them down. And it really is, in a lot of ways, in my opinion, um, sort of society giving itself permission collectively to be a sore loser and to just kind of take this thing that's primal in all of us and just in this particular tribe next to this particular campfire, just take it to an extreme. And uh, I don't think that it is healthy. But I also think that it's human nature and to a degree it is absolutely inevitable and it furthers the need to get some level of psychological and strategic support outside of your sort of like nuclear tribal unit. Mm. That's that's really well articulated as well. And that's the best advertisement for getting a community of some people around you. Sometimes mm. it happens naturally and you're blessed to be with a group of people that kind of push you forward all the time and challenge you and speak honestly with you. Other times you have to actively seek it out. And I guess that's kind of what my role would be as a financial advisor as well, is that it's often I'm doing that, but it's in the context of money to start with, but that's quite a broad, it spills out into everything. Mm. How much loneliness is there for those that are truly successful with investing? Like you would have seen a lot of people from all sorts of different starting points. They would have gone through what you've coached them through. They would have discovered on themselves because you're not doing it for them. If anything, you're doing it with them, but it's them that's doing it. Yes. When they get there, they probably have a sense of immense achievement, like genuine pride. And they're just genuinely over the moon at that, that they were able to actually accomplish it and pull it off. Absolutely. Because they probably doubted themselves at certain states, but they pulled through it. How, how lonely is it for those people when they get there? Yeah, two, two types of clients to this point, and I'm always figuring out how to maximize the former and minimize the latter. You have ones who show up, smash the work, and say thank you, and the ones who kind of quit on themselves and vanish into the ether. And life is long. My door is always open for them to come back. But that has been the case, and I would say it's about an 80-20 ratio. Okay, and so that's any, pretty good. Anything yeah. that I can do to, A, preclude that from happening, but also to prevent it from happening in real time, I'm all for. And 100%, like it is, um, like what I do is an eight week, like the crux of it is an eight week transformation where you're spending about half of it on stock picking and half of it on investing. And if you don't understand the difference between stock picking and investing, you're in trouble. Okay. But you spend it on the two. And um, on, at the end of it, there's a massive amount of fruition because you've actually put skin in the game under your own power and you're ready to keep going. And what I found can happen, though, is best practices can fade into a distant memory. And so it is important to maintain an understanding of what you're doing and not do you. It's mostly about front loading the work so you can intelligently do almost nothing. But as we were talking about yesterday with Rupert, it is a choose your own adventure and you have to make grown up decisions about how you choose to invest time, money and emotional energy into what you're doing deciding the cadence, sticking to it, accumulating experience, and then evolving with that data. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's important. And so one, one thing that's happened and where community has been quite important 
has been during volatility, like right now. Mm-hmm. So I have, I do a monthly meet with people that have come through the program. Anybody who wants to come do that, I do that for free in perpetuity to make sure that nobody is turning into Joey Public and self-sabotaging at the worst imaginable moment. And it feels like right now is pretty, this could go on for years, but this is feeling like one of those moments, certainly. And there have been some very interesting conversations lately that I believe if that wasn't there as a monthly cadence of support, people would have flown off the rails. Mm. And um, it was there were just certain pieces of complexity that emerged that they couldn't have accounted for when we originally onboarded them and as they went through and, and laid down their initial plan. Mm. And so as long as there's a bit of, and it's always, it's always, I mean, like to use a cheesy term, like heartwarming to see it when it's not just coming from me. There are other people that are stepping in and bringing their slice of the universe to support other people. That is effectively building a community, like a like-minded community that is lifting each other up. Okay, so there's going to be a time of testing, even though you had an amazing amount of confidence that doesn't remove you from the pool of people that get tested at some time. So at some stage, the uninformed optimism, let's say, turns into informed optimism along the way right but talk to me about that like how many people kind of fail that test so to speak and is is there an identifying feature that separates those who succeed from those who fail during times of testing yeah so for me i mean like i am i am all for the idea of pre of front loading the work so you can intelligently do almost nothing with massive confidence that's grounded in reality. I'm also a massive fan of the idea of winning the war before it's been fought. And so for me, it's like, there's this great movie um, about sort of like chess called searching for Bobby Fisher. And one of the things yeah. that he, that his mentor teaches him in that movie seen that. is great. Um, yeah. don't move until you see it. And my background actually as a little kid also was like in those tournaments and that meant that was like mass, that was kind of like clicked with me through an investing prism. And so, like, and another thing from that movie was probably the best scene in that movie was Lawrence Fishburne playing with him in the park and being like, your problem is you're playing not to, you're not playing to win, you're playing not to lose. And so for me, those are interconnected ideas. And so the key thing is I don't have anybody invest a dime, but nobody, and this, this is their own decision, of course, but like, Nobody invests a dime, according to the philosophy that I am sharing with them, until they are totally dialed in on the stock picking side and they're feeling totally dialed in on the investing side in terms of best practices. And one of the questions is an example that they answer before before putting skin in the game at all, much less like significant skin in the game, is what will I do? What will I do if my investments fall 80% and stay down for two years. And if you don't have a good answer to that question, you have absolutely no business playing the game of long-term investing because Mm. you haven't thought through the if then. Mm. And so actually thinking that through, and it's interesting because there's also a difference between analytically understanding your answer on paper and embodying it during the moment. And so as much as I can possibly do to help another human soul make all of the if-then decisions, win the games, the game of chess in terms of stock picking where you have massive faith in what you've selected and your ability to find new fresh fat fish in the future and your ability to feed those fat fish with as little effort as is necessary, but 100% temperamentally prepared for whatever the world throws at you Mm. is what I'm going to do. And generally speaking, like I said, like if people have a 
primal determination to conquer the fear of outliving their money and just the frustration of feeling stuck and the inability to have it be that like their world, like their family. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I have um, clients who are supporting their friends in certain ways and like they want to be able to lift up like their entire like tribal unit and then have spillover that they can lift up their communities beyond that in terms of philanthropy, altruism, what have you. If you really are burning with desire for those things and now is your time, you can do it. But if you don't have that drive, for whatever reason, people will just duck the answers to those questions. They won't give them real bandwidth. And then during moments like this, when it seems like the sky is falling, they're going to fall into the Joey public trap of checking your smart, your stock app 75 times a day and not doing anything that's actually like useful for you. That's so good. Yeah. So don't move until you see it. That's the first thing, right? That 100%. I got out of that. So don't move until you see it. In other words, wait for it to come to you, I guess, in a way, or don't actually, don't actually take action until you feel you are in absolute alignment. It's like fishing. You, <laughs> like whenever I take kids fishing, they are like, well, have I caught one yet, dad? Have I caught one yet? How do I know that I've caught one? This one feels like, you know, you will know when you catch something. Mm. You'll know when you're ready. You'll know when you see it. But, but I guess sometimes people come and they say, because they've been prepped to, well, they've always been told what to do. Yes. So they say the thing that you, even you might have said it, right? Like I catch this every, every now and then with the people I talk to. I'll hear people saying things that I know they've heard that somewhere else. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's something else, sometimes they read it. But do they really believe it? It's hard to tell initially. How, how do you know when someone is genuinely believing it for themselves versus putting on something that they've just read in an article. Oh yeah. So one, I mean, one thing with that is, um, you know, cause addiction to financial television is a pretty significant condition as a matter of fact. So is addiction to the news. So is addiction to stock vacillations. So in a lot of like, you know, short term dopamine hits that have been, have turned your, your wearable equipment into like, you know, something of a crack pipe. It's, it's massively problematic. Not everyone, you know, everyone is free, obviously, to make their own choices, but I encourage people, uh, addiction to stock newsletters and ideation is a major thing as well, and just constantly imbibing in short-term information with no impact. I sort of encourage people to kick all of that stuff cold turkey and to go through the eight weeks, dial in something new. I had a great... Um, a great physical coach in Cairns, Australia, who runs an outfit called Shoshin Movement. And the idea of Shoshin is starting from nothing, starting as a total beginner, as a student. So coming in and starting from zero, letting all of that stuff go, letting all of the beliefs and all of the ineffective tools go, and then dial this in. And then once you're on the other side of it, you can reabsorb those things. And if it comes to pass that you want to make that part of your system from a position of power and optionality and knowledge, you're free to do so. It's like you have this through line and you can add complexity to it if it's good for you. But most of the time, it will expose for you that that was, it was tantamount to like nicotine. You know what mm. I mean? Where you're, you're better off without it. Right. So it's like the great personal reset. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we started off talking about uh, diversification versus concentration or focus investing. And then we kind of just took a little bit of attention, a little wild walk in the woods there talking about amateur investing and all that sort of stuff. And I can just get back to the core thread of what we're talking about here. So just going back back to you in terms of what you find is the common denominator in this discussion so far, to get back on track, I'll hand it over to you. 
So yeah, unifying theme, because yeah, we started talking about focus versus diversification, and then we went into amateur investing. But a core feature, and again, I cited Peter Lynch during our really good conversation with Rupert yesterday, is sort of like, I think the poster child, if you can call him that, in the literature of this, is a prime advantage that an amateur investor has that a professional fund manager does not, for a variety of reasons that you could read about in that book, 1989's One Up on Wall Street, is, as he would say, the amateur has the freedom to focus their investments across a couple of core holdings, whereas the fund manager is forced to diversify. And that freedom enables, because all we're trying to really do is build up and, and ever do an ever better job of balancing our income, our lifestyle, and our contribution. And so from an income lifestyle, and I think also contribution perspective, being able to choose your own investments and only having a few so you don't have to spend that much time on it creates a much better proposition than needing to track 35 companies or more like him 1400 companies or trusting other people to do this for you because it's in the too hard pile and so a core feature of amateur investing that you can exploit that is so wildly underexploited by the everyday investor is focusing is focus investing which is concentrating in several companies rather than, like I said, spreading them across as many baskets as you can mm-hmm. get your hands on. Mm. It's interesting that you frame that as an advantage for the amateur investor because most amateur investors, if I was just to guess, and you know, I, I, I'm absolutely putting myself in this category as well, right? Because I'm still learning. Most amateur investors would probably be feeling like they've always got a constant disadvantage because they don't have enough money, they don't have enough knowledge, they don't have enough oomph, whatever it is. They often probably feel like they also might do something and lose. They've got, they suffer from pre-disillusionment, like I was explaining before. Mm. That's kind of like where, where most people, but what you're basically saying is that they actually have a distinct advantage that they're not actually tapping into. Absolutely. And like I said, like the, um, from a historical professional literature perspective, I'm 100% standing on Peter Lynch's shoulders and also to a degree, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, you have that awesome clip. We like to put a lot of money in things that uh, that we feel strongly about. And that gets back to the diversification question. Uh, we think diversification is, as practiced generally, makes very little sense for anyone that knows what they're doing. Diversification is a protection against ignorance. If you know how to analyze businesses, and value businesses, it's crazy to own 50 stocks or 40 stocks or 30 stocks probably because there aren't that many wonderful businesses that are understandable to a single human being in all likelihood. And and to have some super wonderful business and then put money in number 30 or 35 on your list of attractiveness and and forego putting more money into number one just strikes Charlie and me as, as, as madness. It's a confession, in our view, that you don't really understand the businesses that you own. But three wonderful businesses is more than than you need in this life to do very well. If you look at how the fortunes were built in this country, uh, they weren't built out of a portfolio of 50 companies. A really wonderful business is very well protected against against the vicissitudes of the economy over time and, and, and the competition. I mean, you know, we're talking about businesses that are resistant to effective competition. And three of those will be better than 100 average businesses. At, uh, uh, and, and they'll be safer, incidentally. There is less risk 
in owning three easy-to-identify wonderful businesses than there is in owning 50. It's amazing what has been taught over the years in finance classes about that, but Charlie? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what he's saying is that much of what is taught in modern corporate finance courses is twaddle. But basically, like, the smartest money is doing one thing, and Joey Public is doing the exact opposite. And so for me, it's like, you know, we talked about it yesterday, a core example. Actually, I would, I would frame myself here. So I have literally six reasons why if your true objective is making enough money with your money that you don't need to worry about making money with your time anymore – and that you can look yourself in the mirror and be like, I'm not scared I'm gonna outlive my money. And I am spending my life the way that I want to, not the way that I think that I have to. Diversification is nowhere near as effective as focus investing and concentration for at least six major reasons. I was training to be a, uh, an SAT tutor in like a ridiculously white glove way, like nine years ago or so. And I was uh, learning under this unbelievably smart, but unbelievably disgruntled teacher who would give you massive sort of energy and data about how teachers were underpaid and how he was making more from this side hustle than from his job. And that was a perfect guy, example of somebody who was underutilizing his intelligence and feeling really victim-y and trapped. And he just said something that was so useful where he goes, I could literally make almost every teacher in the world spontaneously combust. Do you know how I could do that? And I was like, I don't like. Do, <laughs> do, I, do I need to know this? Why don't, why don't you tell me? And he's like, before they get up to the chalkboard, ask them, what is the objective of this session? And that is so razor sharp because basically before anyone sits down to do anything, they probably have not clarified the objective of the session. The um, David Allen, who wrote the book, Getting Things Done, has a three-step thing where it's define, decide, remind, define the end result, decide the action that's required, and then visibly remind yourself that you've begun so that you don't forget. And so defining is such an important thing. And so just, you know, as you listen to this, think about everything that's being said in the context of what you want and do an ever better job of sharpening your answer to the question, what is the objective of this session? And so with that being said, focus investing is more powerful than diversification, like I said, for at least six major reasons. I'll start with um, what some people might consider the squishiest, but you, I, I was... Um, you know, politely, creatively stalking you before I came on here and seeing everything that you published lately. And you published a poll saying that half of your audience at least wants to be ethically investing. And that being the case, the ethical argument is that if you are spreading your investments across so many companies that you don't even know what they are, do you know what you are and are not supporting? Are you unwittingly supporting things that would make your skin crawl if you understood what you were doing? And so are you participating in the proliferation of poverty, obesity, inequality, pollution, fill in the blank, by dint of your lazy assumption that diversification is the right thing to do? It feels like sometimes we're being told that to be an ethical investor, we need to do it a certain form, like a, we need to do it in a certain way. And if we're not doing it this way, then we're not being an ethical investor Yet you've just unlocked something that I think is, is really quite profound. Like if there's 2,000 companies in your exchange-traded fund that you have in your core allocation, 
And I'm not suggesting that everybody needs to pull out and make changes off the back of this. But if you don't know the workplace culture at, at, at a minimum of 2,000 companies, how could you ever confidently say that you are an ethical investor? You might be subscribing to an ethical set of standards, yes, but mm. how ethical are you really if you don't even know the workplace culture of some of these, these businesses, which would be a hard thing to do, admittedly. But just putting that out there, is that kind of where you're going here, that it goes deep, right? That's actually more incisive and with a higher level of standard than what I was saying. What I was saying was outward and what you're saying is inward. So what I'm talking about is social impact, the impact that the company is having on the world, regardless of whether the employees are being treated like indentured servants or not. Yeah. Where yeah. you're talking about what's going on inside of the company, which is, in my opinion, at, at least an equally good point. And and so you should, if because if, if, so if you haven't done the diligence, as they say, do your due diligence, to understand, like if you choose to have the standards and and um, I guess you could say like high horsedness of being an ethical investor, you're not just trying to win the game pragmatically, you're also winning it ethically, you're doing well by doing good. It requires more work, it requires mm. more discernment. And if you're just floating your money across 500 companies out of either intellectual torpor or terror, mm. then you're not doing that work. Yeah. If you're going to be a responsible investor, you have to be a responsible person. Mm. You can't I mean, be irresponsible. In, in my experience, because I've, I've worked with people who, um, who tick this box sometimes so aggressively and thoroughly that they need to be reminded as they go through the process that you're not going to find a lot of the time a company that lives all the way up to your expectations because arguably every company that has to achieve economies of scale, is going to need to make some kind of a sacrifice. It can be, your standards can be so high that you have to leave your money literally under your mattress because your mattress is the only perfect entity in the world. Mm. But like, but there is, of course, a middle ground where you are proud of what you're investing in. Mm. Because to quote David Gardner of The Motley Fool, your investments represent you. They represent your personality. They represent your trajectory, certainly where you're going. And they rep they represent what you believe in in the world. Mm. Yeah. yeah. He didn't say all that. He said it more concisely than that. But no, that no, was, like, that I get point. what you're saying though as well. And I guess that's like if, if good enough sometimes is good enough. I'm not saying, hey, settle for average, but I'm. You, you're never going to get perfection, right? And I, mm -hmm. I know that with, with a lot of these um, paradigms that people adopt, it is almost like a quest for perfection and they become religious fanatics about this. And then they cut everybody else down who challenges their way of doing things. No, you don't realize that I'm doing it this way. You know, it's, it, they become way too black and white and they've missed the point. It's not investing anymore. It's some other weird thing. Yeah. So that's, that's a fascinating point. Okay. So that was number one. So what was, what was the title of number one? Just so I'm really clear. The ethical argument. The ethical argument. All right. Give me number two. Okay. So this is kind of incomplete. I have it down as the logical argument, but I would actually reframe that to just like one mathematical observation, which is that weighting your investments by market cap. So, you know, if you're investing yep. in the S&P 500, you are spreading your money across the companies in the bigger the perceived size of the company, which is the market cap, the total value of all shares, the higher that is, the more money is going into that company. Mm. And so and so like, you know, number 500 is getting so much less money than number one. And it's probably the top five or 20 are commanding almost all of the investment dollars. Mm. If you had done that, 
15 years ago, let's say, you would have bought exponentially more Walmart than Amazon. And I think also exponentially more Blockbuster and no Netflix. And so that is a problem. And actually, in a lot of ways, and of course, this is complex and it needs to be personalized across a couple of different vectors, but this um, it's an effective strategy in reverse. Mm. Smaller market cap companies that have the durability and, and like a brighter future than companies that have run their course mm. is worth thinking about. And that those are all but excluded by sort of weighting things by market cap on autopilot. That if you're big already, like if you've already succeeded, don't take a risk by gambling on these other guys that haven't made it yet. Just go with what already works, which might work in some areas. Like I know with investment properties, that can kind of be a really good way. It can be effective. It It can be effective. And it might still be effective, I guess, doing that. But it's just something not to just automatically assume every time. So basically what you're saying is this whole market cap weighting thing. There's a little bit of a nuanced risk here that you could be missing the next Netflix because at some moment in time, Blockbuster was always way bigger than Netflix. There's, um, I came up with this thing called the fine fat fish imbalance sheet, which is all of the factors that don't show up on a balance sheet or a financial statement. And so there's a term that I ran into and I forget where, but the specious use of numbers. This is the specious use of numbers. And so like sometimes people use like PE ratio or market cap or what have you to do their thinking for them as like the first prism. And that more often than not shows me that they haven't done lateral thinking under the surface and questioned assumptions. And so because oftentimes it is a qualitative observation rather than a quantitative and some kind of a pattern recognition that actually shows you that something is likely to be the next Apple, the next what have you. And just stacking it by market cap, I agree. It's designed to, in theory, designed to keep you safe. But on a long enough time horizon and compared against the opportunity cost of what you could do if you pursued it in a more nuanced Mm. and and personalized way, Mm. in my opinion, the opportunity cost is unacceptable. Yeah. And the way that I would express it, and I'd zoom out and look at it, not just in shares, but in the whole world of investing, is that if you're investing for new wealth for the new world, you have to be looking at the new, not the old, right? Not not, not, not say that the old is crap. That's exactly right, though. That's exactly. And so I guess one thing that you could say there that I think the everyday investor would find useful, again, standing on Peter Lynch's shoulders, because he, this was in one of his three books, there's three lives of a company. You have creation, duplication, saturation. And so creation is when a company is just coming into its own, it's figuring out what it does, who it does it for, trying to turn a profit. Duplication is it's been successful and now it is just duplicating and expanding that success all over the world. And then you have saturation where it's kind of dried up and what now what it's doing is it's not focusing on growing and expanding its influence. It is sort of talking about shareholder value. It tends to slap a dividend on it. Don't sell our stock. We're paying you a dividend now. And so what can happen by stacking it according to market cap is you're investing in saturated companies and you have totally stepped away from creation and duplication, which are actually the sweet spot of capital gains. That's good. And we're not talking necessarily just about growth versus value investing here, but you can kind of see a bit of an overlap, right? That's exactly it. And so as uh, one of my heroes, George Carlin, said, have you ever noticed that everyone who's killing each other, they're all wearing a hat? 
And there's, he's like, I always try to avoid wearing a hat. And so for me, it's the same. Like I'm not, like I, I have to wear the hat. I'm, I'll proudly wear the hat of amateur investor because I am and sort of like outside consultant and sort of just like outside of the system because I am. But when it comes to growth versus value or anything like that, or even like concentration versus diversification, because there can be an effective blend according to your personality. Like I refuse to put on a hat. And growth versus value, and like Buffett pointed this out, like, like I don't understand the distinction because you they're the same. And for me, like that's part of what I help people do on, on their own terms with their own tastes and preferences is effectively tick the boxes that a growth investor would tick and a value investor would tick mm. to create sort of a, a Right, find the overlap. Absolutely. Right. That's cool. Well, what have we got there next on the list in terms of uh, number three? These are deep thoughts that you just kind of scribbled on a bit of paper before we even hit record, isn't it? Like this just came to you. It's just um, like, like Moses I, with the tablet, right? Moses, you just I, come I, down. Your face is glowing. You, That's why you're so white. <laughs> you, you know, you know what we've said about top hobby syndrome. There will be no Moses comparison. <laughs> but um, but basically, yeah, like there's an intro and an outro, and then a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that's what yeah. this little scrap of paper represents. Got it. So I just scribbled it before we started talking. Yeah. But yeah. we also have the oligarchic argument, which I okay. raised uh, with Rupert yesterday, which is the answer is like screamingly in front of everyone's faces. Yeah. And so I think one thing to understand, well, I'll, I'll point it out first and then zoom sure. out to yeah. what the public is doing. Yeah. So if you listen to Elon Musk talk for 10 minutes, which is about all that I've listened to him talk for 10 minutes, uh, I just, cause I wanted to see what all of the sort of clamor was about. And in 10 minutes of listening to him talk, he's, you I got get, three, three full sentences probably after that. I got, I basically. He, no disrespect, Elon. I'm sorry. I, I got. I, I can't. I can't insult the guy because one day he's going to be sitting there. I know. 100. <laughs> percent But he he is a focus investor. Yeah. He is exclusively, and he'll lead with this. He has almost no respect for cash, and he is so brave about just making concentrated investments. Yeah. And so he's got basically just his companies and then some cryptos, and that's it. And so that was the formula to become the richest man in the world. And before him, you had Bezos, who owned 20% of Amazon, and then post-divorce and whatnot, it whittled to about 11%. But when we spoke last time, that 11% of Amazon was worth more than 160 million people's estates in the United States. He had more money personally than half of the United States because of 11% of Amazon. So you had him, you had Steve Ballmer, and of course, Bill Gates, who was the creator, and then the former CEO of Microsoft. Ballmer, who owns the LA Clippers, amongst a ton of other things, was fame, was sort of drew headlines because he had a 70% concentration in Microsoft. And, and so 70% of his billions were in Microsoft, and he was then able to exponentially increase that investment while collecting a dividend. Yeah. And so the answer are like, when if you look at people who are wealthy, how, where did the money come from? Where did it not? Yeah. The money came from owning one successful company for a long period of time. Yeah. And the money did not come from anywhere else. All of the gadgetry, all yeah. of the defense, me defensive mechanisms, and that's it. Yeah. And so that's the art is seeing a company that's going to be successful, figuring out what is that right cadence of upkeep so that you're not obsessing about it, but you're not neglecting it. How do you walk that tricky tightrope? And then how do you keep putting skin in the game over a long period of time, even though your subconscious and probably your family is screaming at you to sell? And so, mm -hmm. and so that's it. And, and so basically like you have, that's what the people who are winning are doing. And that is how, you know, oligarchy and all that is not just occurring, but expanding. Mm -hmm. While Joey Public is assuming that you need to diversify, you need to, 
you know, put everything into sort of like a block, a, a plot of land and a block of wood. You know what I mean? And and so for me, the oligarchic argument is just sort of a screaming cry from reality where it's like, look at the scoreboard and how many people are worshiping Elon Musk versus how many people are actually emulating Elon Musk's formula. That's fascinating. Not many, if any, is my guess. Almost nobody. So just creating a little bit of a bridge here for some of our listeners who might be listening in and thinking, well, this is this is fascinating. And it is, by the way, this is a good, this is a good chat. But going back to some other form of investment that a lot of New Zealanders are naturally really com- comfortable with, which is a concentrated investment strategy, and a lot of Kiwis might not realize this, that it is actually an incredibly high-risk concentrated play, which is residential investment property. Instinctively, they probably have seen this work already. The fact that um, you know you could be very concentrated in your business. You're, you're a sole operator of a business, which is actually spinning off a lot of really good cash flow. Or you're, you're a founder in a fintech firm and, and you're going places and it's awesome. I've seen a lot of that. Um, but maybe you're a property investor and you've just got four rental properties in a home, but actually you're, you're killing it. Either way, you're still going to be going through the same sort of dramas because you are a concentrated investor. There's mm. going to be a lot of ups and a lot of downs, a lot of doubt, a lot of people saying, I don't think you should. I think you should pull out. There's, you're going through all that. But when you ask people who have done well or when you find out what people did to get well, usually it's business um, or it's investing in other people's business. We'll just say it's the same thing or property. It's pretty much it. Mm. I'm sure there's other variations of that. But business, either as a, as a shareholder of your own firm or as an investor in other people's firms, maybe a few, maybe a lot, or it's property. Yeah, That's true, right? Like it's, it's not found by someone who's investing in the index necessarily. No. Like you're going to get the market compounding magic. That's awesome. And if you've got great income and you're really frugal, you're going to get some form of a retirement, which is probably better than most. But you'll get where you need to know, to go, but then you have to look yourself in the mirror if you're willing to do the thinking and question the opportunity cost. And there's a lot of like we had a really good conversation um, first time around about sort of uninformed pessimism, which is useless and everywhere, uninformed optimism, which is dangerous and everywhere, and then informed pessimism, which with all respect in the world, like Rupert brought at a very high level when we talked yesterday. And then uninformed optimism, which is just a couple of shreds of information, like the three sentences that Elon Musk would utter over 10 minutes that enables him to step into the fire and do things that most people would never be willing to participate in because they don't have that vision of where it's going and they don't have frankly, like the, the courage and fortitude to roll the dice and see it through. Yeah. And so when you're in the realm of the people that are going to make more than enough money, roll it over into traditional investment schemes and get off with a good retirement, yeah. you're talking about, and I have um, some people that are very dear to me that fall into this box, and that's totally fine as long as it's a position, a decision that you've made and you're congruent with. It's totally fine. But you're talking about like the accountant, the lawyer, the ironically, the financial professional, the uh, the people who have made sort of created safe purchase where they don't really have to take risk. They just need to go and be super competent in keeping people safe in one area. Mm. That is the professor, perfect example. Mm. And, um, and so as long as you are good with that trajectory, I have all faith in your ability to quantify to the decimal point, like where you're going to be in 30 years and all that in all likelihood. I completely believe in that. And that's really not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about people in all likelihood who are not 
on a safer trajectory mm. or people like what we were talking about, entrepreneurs who are like, I see that. Mm. And the opportunity cost and so of like the social impact and what I could leave my children and everything and what I could do in this lifetime mm. is just so unacceptable that I need to step into a bumpier and less certain path. You're a good investor if you're diversified and you're doing that job. Awesome. You're a great investor, potentially, if we do what we're talking about here. I think that's right. And then, then the difference, of course, you know, because it's difficult to have this conversation and not talk about the 80-20 principle. The 80-20 principle was originally noted talking about net worth discrepancies. And so the observation was that 80% or more of money belongs to 20% or less of people. Of course, as I was alluding to, it's getting horrifying because the people that have the money are still rapaciously concentrating and innovating. And the people that don't have the money are diversifying and playing small and this mm. is gambling, et cetera. And so it's just growing and growing and growing and growing. Mm. It's and contributing to inequality. It is um, more than anything else, I would have to say. And so, and so for me, like I, my own like optimism and idealism has died by a thousand cuts in certain ways where I have seen enough to know as a matter of certainty that 80% or more of the money will always belong to 20% or less of the people. But I, you know, and I will like scratch and claw to do what I can to do this. Like that should be 20% of the people, not 20 people. And so there is definitely room to push it from like 200 people to 20% of the global population. And so that, and those are the people in my opinion over a period of years and decades that are gonna be needle movers is people that can step in with real means in, in, and staying power into playing the concentration game. And if you're somebody as an example who is making really good, a really good salary and like living really frugally and never, never making the mistake where you're accumulating liabilities you think are assets, et cetera. Mm. The people that are in, have that kind of a defensive infrastructure that are like, you know what? I am going to pivot my 2.2% return to a 22% return. Mm. Those are the people that close that gap. Mm. And a lot of people, I hate to say it for both financial and temperamental reasons are not, and will never be eligible to, mm. to even try. And that, that is just, what it is to quote the horrible cliche <laughs> like it is what it is you, you cannot actually you can't say like people listening and watching you can't think down on yourself if you recognize the fact that you're not going to be the person to do this that's true right? if there was a, if there was a subtext of um anything then when i said that other than yeah. flat fact i take I, it I don't, I don't think there is because but i think that's important just to point out right like you're not we're not trying to um diminish any group here or put anyone down or make anyone feel bad because you're not playing a game according to what we're doing we're just highlighting and talking about a specific form of investing and to be honest a specific form of thinking and being and acting in a lot of areas really focused living is what we're really talking about where you are concentrating your efforts into a handful of activities or investments that can move the needle in some way like your back is against the wall you are desperate if you do not slay this dragon it will destroy you are you going to sit there and be devoured or are you going to actually stand up do something about it 100%. that's what we're talking about right so I, I think so and yeah for me like that's exactly it and so misery in my opinion you're using this to systematically dispatch unnecessary misery and misery is contorting yourself into a life that isn't you and if the life that is you is kicking ass as a lawyer or an accountant whatever being the guy or whatever gender that dots the i's crosses the t's 
You know what I mean? That's what you do. And you do the same thing in investing where there's no, you're just a hundred percent congruent with the inevitability of where you're going. You're doing it exactly right. The, the problem is not that the problem is people that know that they're leaving something on the table. Then there's a dragon that needs to be slayed that they just haven't found the psychology and the strategy to slay. Mm. And it's eating them from the inside out. That's the problem. Going back to the inequality thing, and I know we're on point number three or four, something like that, 3.41 dash <laughs> Something like that. So we often would look to those above us, those who are um, false gods of government, we'll say, to solve the problems of inequality because we can't solve it. So they're our agent to deal with a problem that we've given up even trying to, to, to solve. I'm talking again about inequality, but what you said before was quite enlightening for me because... To move to a headspace like this, where you are a focused person, full stop, you are actually solving the problem of inequality, aren't you? In a decentralized, individualistic way, you're taking responsibility for your actions and you are doing something about it. You're not giving up. You're not spreading your effort wide because you don't know what's going to work and you can't be bothered figuring it out and somebody else is going to deal with it. You're not doing any of that. You're saying, no, I'm, I'm going to actually take this one on board and I'm going to solve this problem because if I don't do it, no one else is going to do it for me. Mm. That actually solves inequality is what we're talking about here, right? That is very interesting. It sounds extremely lofty when you put it like that, but it's accurate. And um, Let's just say it's true. And, and for me, 100%. And, but, <laughs> but for me, it's like, what is, the, um, what is the lead metric for something that's meaningful? Like a lot of the time people are focusing, like we talked about two years ago, like what Warren Buffett eats for breakfast, et cetera. And much respect to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger for telling it how it is from their perspective. Mm. I have infinite respect for them for doing that. And in a lot of ways, there's a generosity inherent in that that is rare. But at the same time, focusing on the net worth of a 95-year-old man is a lagging indicator squared. That is not something that is going to help you now. And so what is it exactly that is a lead metric that is going to get you where you want to go? And what you're talking about, I completely agree with you, is there is an informed optimism inequality that is creating an intelligent action inequality that is creating a net worth inequality. And that is a through line to solve the problem is increase the number of people that have a real informed optimism that are taking intelligent action on that optimism in a sustainable way, despite volatility, despite the winds of the world, whatever, in route to what they want for themselves and then their families and then their communities. Couldn't have said it better than that. Well said. I think we're ready for the next point. We have the shockingly non-famous argument. I... Every time that I ever speak in any kind of public forum, I have to reference the name of Peter Lynch. His work is not famous enough. You have the most successful institutional investor, arguably of all time, who turned $18 million into $14 billion from like 77 to 89. And then he published three books saying that he, the most successful investor of the 1980s, would have had significantly more success if he could operate with the freedom and the concentration of an amateur and that it would have, he would have been even more successful if he had listened to his wife and like s s sort of studied her and his children's shopping habits. And so, wow, and so he, right. yeah. he put that out in One Up on Wall Street and then Beating the Street and then Learn to Earn. And in three books consecutive that have somehow just not entered the mainstream, even though from where I'm sitting, that's the equivalent of the most successful doctor 
of the 80s and arguably of all time, publishing three books saying that, check, that their patients would have gotten better results at no cost if they had done checkups and surgeries themselves. It is an absolutely <laughs> disruptive work. And, right, okay. and, it, and it was, and if anything, because he wrote it pre-internet, more or less, if anything, it's exponentially more true now. And so the fact that the greatest diversified institutional investor of all time said that he would have done better as a focus investor, as an amateur, with, as he would ballpark it, five to 12 investments, that's one-stop shopping. It's interesting, hey, because even you, you get because you get that message obviously with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger as well. Like it's the same sort of concept, right? You you do, um, but the one thing about them that's fascinating is um, they are, with all due respect, um, they're in the habit of underestimating people, and so they they underestimated Bezos. And again, they have they will tell you this point blank, which is why I have so much respect. I'm I know, same, I same know. here, right? Because they, 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 they say that. So that's yeah, that's how I. Know. They underestimated Bezos. They yeah. underestimated Musk. And so they were like, I wouldn't have invested in his idea if he had asked me directly for the money. Yeah. And they're underestimating people. So for their purposes, mm. for their purposes, they they have killer lines that you, you uh, cut together a really great snippet about why you concentrate. One of Charlie, Charlie Munger has 75 good lines about everything. Yeah. But one of his about concentration is simply wise ones bet big when the world gives them the opportunity. The rest of the time they don't. It's just that simple. Mm. Where, but whereas they, from their belief, mm. they believe that, and again, you have to consider the source with all due respect, they grew up at a different time in a different place without the information, or the internet shaping people's ability to self-educate and the ability to actually act on your investments. The tools that are available now are imperfect, but they're amazing. And also, again, with, due, with all due respect, they collect people's money for a living and multiply it. And it is in your professional best interest for the average person not to know how to do this. Mm. It's just a baked-in assumption as a baked-in need. Mm. And so for that reason, you can understand why their, their vantage point is that Joey Public cannot beat the market. And because they're as influential as they are and they're as transfixing and brilliant as they are, that has become a mainstream belief. I'm not putting it totally on them, everyone saying that. Mm. But it's not true. And mm. for me, like literally – Having scoured the literature, like you have Peter Lynch, who like shine shone a bright light against that, and for whatever reason has been quiet since then. Yeah, and that's almost it. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's an important it's, it's an a, important a, belief to have to, to make yeah. a decision about. It's just I I find it like I'm in a really interesting position because the like the revenue model for most people delivering financial advice is linked somewhat to the neighborhood of a diversified strategy in most cases, mm. like most fund managers, like, yeah, it's just the yeah. way structurally, that's the way things seem to work. And so I'm inside, I'm questioning things. I'm trying to figure out myself as I develop my own business to deliver financial advice in a, in a new and creative way. I'm trying to figure out what's changing around me in the industry that I can, like I'm waiting for almost a wave that I can ride, but I, I'm kind of also just, worried that there's not going to be a wave mm. from the industry at least that will help the advisors who are smart enough to see this happening to get into alignment with what does work well but at the same time I'm open-minded enough to not 
close off my mind to the opposite of what we're talking about today as well. Mm. I'm actually totally into managed funds right now, right? Mm. Like I, I, I love them because I love the synergies and I like the, the way that they kind of resonate off each other with the different asset classes. And I think that's, I'm just geeking out on that. Mm. Like I, I love that. And, and for me, I'm currently building my core diversified strategy. So I've got a, a, a blueprint that I've, I've kind of pretty happy with where I've already built my concentrated pots to a certain degree. And there's some refinement that can happen. But I guess what what I'm trying to do by by just bringing that up is that I'm not I'm not drinking your Kool Aid in a sense just because you're here, mm. but what you're saying makes a lot of sense, and I need to let that I need to let I need to actually listen to that not because I I don't like what you're saying, but I, I need to listen to it because if there if what you're saying is true, then it's not only true for everyday investors, but it's actually true for the industry that says they support everyday investors. You know what I mean? I think you do. I think I do. I mean, I have to give you and Rupert a lot of credit because, as um, as F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, the mark of a high intelligence is the ability and willingness to hold two opposite ideas in mind at the same time mm. and maintain the ability to function. And I know that I'm in the presence of someone who does not tick those boxes when it's just like in a snap and they, <laughs> and they like come at you. It's like, Whoa. It's like and so and so and where did that come from? People who yeah. are willing to sit with it, entertain the idea. Mm. And in, in Rupert's case yesterday, there's the immediate, his immediate taking to the idea that volatility and risk are not the same thing. And that's mm. not something that's being expressed across the entire community mm. that shows, that gives me hope, frankly, that like mm. there are people on the inside mm. that can hear this and that can make the playing field I wouldn't even say to level, but just mm. better and better and better for people, for amateur investors who are looking to self-direct. Yeah. And yeah. if it also helps their ability to help their client, their clients that they're managing money for, yeah. I mean, so much the better. And that should yeah. be a part of, I guess we could call it like fiscal Darwinism, where like yeah. if you're willing to hear, if you're willing to hear that and, and elevate your practice, regardless of who you are, if there's yeah. a principle that can really help you, even though because it cuts against the grain you know, yeah. power to you. Yeah, no, well said. What's next in your notes? So the next one in terms of why focus investing beats diversification is the Joey public argument. And so I've referenced the term a couple of times. I think it makes sense, but I'll just sort of yeah, expound it. on it. Yeah, It's an inside joke amongst sort of the people that have been through my program. Like what would Joey public do? But basically as somebody who has done a ton of sort of research and then action and then reflection across a couple of different disciplines like writing, investing, public speaking, some other things. There is a almost tragicomical level of disdain amongst the greatest thinkers in any given field about how stupid the average person is, especially when they're part of a torch-wielding mob. But yeah, the level of vitriol towards the, uh, you know, what would now be like the modern, like, you know, Reddit hysteria or whatever is it's extreme and it always has been. And so when I think about an action to take or not take, like uh, something that's helped me sort of stay out of trouble is asking myself, like, what would Joey public do? And then doing the exact opposite. And so through the prism of what would Joey public do is Joey public diversifying or is Joey public concentrating and as I already shared, when we're talking about sort of the ascending and ever ascending oligarchs, mm. they're concentrating. And everyone, the reason the gap is exploding is why it isn't fast as it is, is it is, is because Joey Public is doing the exact opposite. Mm. And 
I actually ran into an interesting um, question as well from somebody else, actually a Kiwi uh, who moved to Westchester, New York, where I'm the exact opposite, who runs a company called Commit Action that holds uh, entrepreneurs accountable for taking one or two or just three uh, committed actions every week. And his observation is basically it's not about working harder and it's not even about working smarter. It's about working more courageously. And so if you ask yourself the question, is this courageous before you do something or don't do something in terms of investing, it is like a stand in for what would Joey Public do? And so as an example, is doing research courageous if rather than putting it off? Definitely. Is making an investment in something that's backed by your own conviction courageous or is it not? It's definitely courageous. Is panic selling something simply because the stock has dropped 40% courageous? Absolutely not. It's not courageous. And so if you use that as your compass rather than working harder or even smarter and certainly to like listening to the clatterings and chatterings that are coming from your smartphone and from your Facebook feed, like that is a much better North Star. And to circle it back, that North Star is facing towards concentration and away from diversification. Okay. Work harder or work smarter, work harder and smarter. I throw in work creatively as well. But then the courageous thing, I've never really thought about that. That is an interesting sort of filter to put on the way you form a thought. Before the thought turns into an action, the question comes up, is this a courageous action? Because I guess if you make a courageous action, your courageous decision, but then it fails, like to me anyway, if I, if I did something that was difficult during today, like if I made a phone call to somebody and I had an awkward conversation with somebody that I had to initiate because it had to get done, I'd feel a lot better about that mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Uh, even though I worked hard and smart and I managed my day really well, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't feel like I had actually done the job well. Mm. So that kind of makes sense intuitively for me if I was to apply that to investing as well. I could work really hard, you know, learning as much as I could to be smarter so that I could make a really smart, intelligent decision and get a passion for whatever it is. But I still might make really, really dumb decisions because I'm not, it's not coming out of a place of uh, courageousness. Mm-hmm. It's coming exactly. out of a place of fear. And you can be, you can have your defensive ecosystem set up so that you're spending as little as humanly possible whilst everything's automated. You know what yeah. I mean? But that there's no, it's a war of attrition because there's no courageousness there either. You talked before about slaying dragons. Yeah. It's kind of what it comes down to. It's like Joey Public is ducking into like sort of primal animal pleasures, like yeah. pain avoidance, comfort seeking, and avoiding yeah. stepping intelligently into the fire when deep down you could say their higher identity like knows it. And that's yeah. where the disconnect and the a lot of the times sort of like the the unhealthy self-hatred can um, can happen. Yeah. Um, And then the last thing for me is the experiential argument where, you know, for myself, like I, when I have concentrated effectively, massively outperformed, like to the point where if you share the numbers, they don't sound real. And I would just, I would move it over towards the Musk's and the Bezos is like, what kind of annualized returns were they getting as a result of their focus investments? And you can do the same thing with smaller stakes if you're willing to, you know, learn the game and play the game courageously, but also very patiently. Mm. And so there's that. Mm. And I would share for me, I mean, just like one thing that I think the everyday investor could relate to is I worked a bit over four years ago 
with an with a dude from the UK who was working as the lead hand in an aluminum mine in Australia. And he had invested, he was making a ton of money, spending very little as a bachelor in his late 20s. And he had handed his money because he couldn't invest it himself. He couldn't take his, his uh, face out of his phone. Right. He handed it to an advisor, was really unhappy with it. When I told him what I did, he was like, I'm your man, I'm keen as... Yeah, um, expletive. And um, and basically, once he learned concentration, he stepped in with real force and rapidly reinvested it in the top monthly um, profits that were going in as well in a very con in an increasingly concentrated way as he found his sea legs. But what happened was in March of 2020, there was a moment that will probably go down as a microcosm of this moment where there was a major drop, massive fear, massive volatility. And he was able to keep himself together. He was able to continue discerning volatility from risk. And rather than sell at the bottom, he leaned in and started working more, shoveling more money in. And he went from a hard wobble to an early retirement. Mm. And those genuinely are the stakes during moments like this. If you sell at the bottom and you, you, don't have, you can't find the strength to really look at like your revenue, your expenses, your assets, liabilities, and make hard adjustments... You're dooming yourself to decades of unnecessary labor as opposed to people that are going to step in and be truly entrepreneurial and courageous and patient in terms of the way that they're thinking about earning, spending, and multiplying money. That's good. And so for me, that's what I've seen. But then it goes back to sort of talking about the major drawback of focus investing, which is that volatility is going to be much louder. And as we talked about yesterday, volatility is not risk for the same reason that a mood swing is not a death. Volatility mm -hmm. is a short-term thing. Risk is a permanent drop to zero. Okay, let's dig into that because there's there's, and there's two kind of things that I want to outline. One is volatility and risk are not the same thing. And then the other one is just a general sort of comment around gambling versus investing. Mm. So volatility and risk, you, you mentioned that yesterday and um, I thought that was a really eloquent way of putting it, right? A, a mood swing. Say that again. So like, volatility is not risk for the same reason that a mood swing is not a death. Cool. That's good. So talk me through that, right? Like I can walk into, and please don't anyone take this the wrong way. I can walk into a room. I can see a gun on the table. I could pick it up. I could put it to my head. It goes click. I didn't die. That was a little bit, you know, that was a bit risky. But That's I a mood die. swing right there. That's yeah. a mood swing, right? But I didn't die. Mm. Now I heard that... Um, Yesterday, I was I was listening to a podcast and I heard that, forgive me, I can't remember what it was, but just to put it out there, that wasn't an original idea. But that's kind of like another way of looking at it, right? Like you can engage in something which is incredibly irresponsible and very, very dangerous, but if it doesn't actually kill you, it doesn't mean that it's okay. So that's one one side of looking at it. Mm. But do you want to kind of just go off that and just just say, what what is the difference between volatility Oof, and risk? That's the trick. I did not expect Russian roulette to come into it. No, but, no. But, yeah, so, but, but why not? But yeah, so basically, I mean, to me, winning, don't move until you see it. Mm. It what, what it is that you're doing, if there's informed optimism and a decent plan in the, that is commensurate with the direction of your goals it should never resemble russian roulette it should never take on that feeling and you should never look back on what you did whether you won or lost and felt like luck really played that big of a role of course there's a bit of luck inherent in everything but if you have truly understood a system you can remove the vast majority of luck and you know to disagree with that 
is a stance that people can take. It's subjective. It's unprovable. But like, do you really think that people like Bezos and Musk and Buffett and Munger like weren't going to win? Like there are like strategies and psychologies that you can pick up and exploit that over a period of years and decades are going to be successful. We're not facing an, uh, like a fun, there's a fundamental truth here that we're not facing if we're not actually looking at this properly. Right. And sorry to interrupt, but mm. it's, it's almost like a sense that, um, we don't want to deal with the fact that these guys are actually geniuses and they're geniuses because they work their butts off and, and they're smart and they were courageous, but they are, they're geniuses. That's what gave them good results. Ultimately, mm. it wasn't luck. But a lot of people would probably look at that as luck. Interesting. Well, I think the use of uh, genius can be massively problematic as well because sure. it creates a, an intellectual distance between you and them. In my yeah, opinion, sure. they're, yeah. they're just people that had a clear vision and had the audacity to show up and begin and the persistence to see it all the way through to the end. Those are literally the only, like, I think rare qualities that people have intelligence dime a dozen. I think even like emotional intelligence and creative intelligence dime a dozen. It is about audacity and sort of grit and persistence. Mm. And I have spent arguably too much time combing through like the self-help literature to like help myself across a variety of ambitions and to be a better teacher. That's what comes back. You know, like Winston Churchill said, it couldn't have said it better where it was simply, and I will never deliver this with his fire, but like never, 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 never give up. And that's it. And so it's just like show up and have a vision, know exactly what you're aiming at so that you're not just doing things randomly and then have the audacity to show up and the persistence to stick with it. And then of course, that by itself is likely to get you where you want to go on a long enough time horizon. However, you can massively expedite progress if you have temporarily the humility to accept support until you're independent. Got it. That's the whole training wheels analogy, right? That makes sense. Or not necessarily training wheels, but there's somebody beside you. They're not doing it for you. They're not carrying you, but they're, they're doing it with you in a sense. But at some stage, the hands kind of come off and you're on your own. And that's one thing that I've, I've seen because I've, I've experimented with all number of different forms of mentorship to sort of continue to sharpen me and the model that I'm using. And one thing that you definitely see, and sometimes you hear people talk about this um, with, uh, with therapists, is they get their emotional hooks in you within, with the intention of never letting you go. You right. become sort of amoral recurring revenue. You can see that in across a lot of fields, certainly in the arena of investing. Mm -hmm. And so, so for me, it is about a short term or at longest an intermediate term burst that you come in feeling out of your depth, scared, confused, unclear on even what you're doing, what your ambitions are, and you come out transformed on the other side, psychologically and strategically, and mm. now ready to stand on your own two feet mm. and ready to pursue and create massive optionality, mm. feeling calm. And, and like you found, as Bruce Lee would say, like your staying speed, where a bad mentor is either incompetent and doesn't deliver you to the end result or they're competent but a bit predatory where they don't actually allow you to step into your own independence. I've, I've, seen, I've seen both of those in relatively high volumes, unfortunately. Okay. Going back to volatility and, and risk here, just to, just to kind of make sure that we put a bow in that one. Mm. So volatility, hey, it's just going to happen. We know that. Risk is when it goes to zero and you've just lost everything. Correct? Yes. If you're going to, for the good, like split hairs, risk could also be investing in a company that then shrinks and never gets bigger. And so your money doesn't drop to zero, 
but it never gets back to what you originally invested. And so you need to be making investments that are protected to the downside, but also counterintuitively protected by having a massive amount of upside. And if you're making concentrated investments, you need to have no meh with your money where like you're like, I am wild about all of these things. And the idea of leaving this money in cash and in cash shield is another thing. People underestimate cash as an asset class in terms of keeping you safe. And uh, and that's something that I get into with people as well, is you need to have the right amount of cash that you are simultaneously passing the sleep test and you're not, you know, having heart palpitations shooting out of bed. But you're also not falling into bladder theory, which is the more you have, the more you piss away. There needs to be a balance of cash that you're safe, but you're not complacent. Bladder theory. Man, I love that. Which is your, (laughs) it's its own, it's its own art form. But beyond that, you need to be, in my opinion, and again, this, your mileage will vary. It needs to be compatible with your character and your situation in the world. But from where I'm sitting, people that are compatible with me and the philosophy is you should be crazy about the investments that you have, but at the same time, aloof enough that you're not rooting for them with zeal like a zealot and you're not sort of rooting for them like your favorite sports team because that's where the emotion has gone too far and you're likely very, very prone to make an over-emotional mistake. Hey, welcome to crypto. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, like, I've, I've heard that you're, uh, you speak with the zeal of, for crypto that yeah. I talk about with certain like other things. Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. And, and there is power in that. But then it just you need to be careful that it's dialed back enough that you can operate with, as Charlie Munger would call it, sort of a philosophical mentality. And you can do you can make ice cold decisions like an entrepreneur sometimes must while having fun with it yeah that's a good point such a good chat man um as we come to a landing because we have to come to a landing at some stage i i want people obviously to be aware that you know like i've done a little bit of digging around as to who you are and how you work but i can't say with certainty that you operate in any in any way the same way that i do in terms of the regulatory regime in new zealand as a financial advisor has to you are not a financial advisor though and what you do is very different so i just want to be really clear for those that are listening how you work. So mm-hmm. can you just explain from, I, I guess, a little bit acknowledging what some of the rules are without needing to know what they are because they don't apply to you, but just to avoid any confusion, if people come to see you, they're not getting advice. Like they're definitely not getting financial advice as defined by the regulation here in New Zealand. They're getting what? It's an alternative consulting service in the field of amateur investing. And so it is certainly not financial advice. It is not a financial service. I have absolutely no interest whatsoever. In fact, as I think I've made redundantly clear, I'm sort of anti just for me doing it, handling someone else's money or telling them exactly what to invest in. It is an alternative philosophy about how people can take the reins of their own independence. Fantastic. And that's really all there is to it. And I think that, so just to be really clear, you don't take anybody's money. And you don't tell people what to invest in. That would be anathema to the independence that I'm looking to help people create for themselves. Fantastic. So if people want to find out more, obviously, I know people have reached out to you as a result of the show and they've kind of just found you. So it works. Whatever you've got out there in terms of the website and the course that you do. But what's probably the, the most efficient way to kind of connect people with a little bit more so they can kind of get involved and, and see if, if it's if it's for you? Because there's mm. probably like a, a couple of barriers you'd want to put in front of people so that, you know, 
people that aren't really the right fit, they don't even, they shouldn't really even be bothering with this is my, in my view. But what would you say to that? Like how, how would you kind of corral somebody into the right area? Here? I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, as we've discussed, like it, it makes sense for everybody having this conversation to, yeah. to be the same. Um, for me, one of the, the major distinction that I would share is everything that we're talking about. Like, I think it makes for really good, like round table discussion. This has been a hell of a fun conversation for me to have. I'm exclusively interested in actually speaking with people that are committed to solving the aforementioned problems immediately and not people that are like theoretically interested in this and looking to collect more information. And so if you're interested, excuse me, not interested, if you are committed in getting after solving the problem of I'm scared I'm going to outlive my money and I want as soon as possible to look in the mirror and say I work because I want to, not because I have to, I would recommend going to findfatfish.com, which I've constructed as a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure. And, you know, committed or interested, you can choose the adventure that suits your purposes. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much again. Always, always a good chat. And I think that, you know, in terms of where we're at in the market right now with the volatility, the, like it's a, it's a giveaway, I think, when, when you have people that are calling you up freaking out about what's going on versus people calling you up and go, hey, how's your day going? Right? Like, there's, <laughs> there's a difference, right? One person understands that volatility is just part of the game that we play. And it doesn't mean that you've made a mistake. It just means that, hey, that means you're investing. That's what we do here. We get we get the ups and the downs, but it doesn't mean you've made a mistake as long as you've actually done the stuff up front. If you want a clear head and a slow pulse, this is the mo- this is the moment where you will want to learn best practices and turn them to your interpretation. I've made a success of this during like a 10-year bull market. During a moment like this, and nobody knows how long this will go on for. This is, objectively speaking, an opportune time to dial in best practices and to just stop feeling scared, horrified, and powerless all the time. Yeah, that's good. Good way to end it. All right, thanks again, Cole. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, cheers. Thanks for listening in to the NZ Everyday Investor Podcast, a show that's about helping you, the everyday Kiwi, build wealth. To learn more about the show, please visit nzeverydayinvestor.com or visit your show notes on your podcast player. There, you can find out how to make contact, sign up to our free newsletter, and check out previous episodes. The mission of the NZ Everyday Investor is to help increase wealth for the everyday Kiwi. If you'd like to support this effort, then there's a few things you can do. Write a review, comment on social media, or support the show on Patreon and subscribe to the channel on YouTube. Before we finish up, just another reminder that what was discussed today is for educational purposes only. Ideally, before acting on anything covered here, please contact your trusted financial advisor and do your own research. Catch you next time.